When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. So what gave me the idea for the show? I wanted to create something that was far more intimate. Yeah. So when we're up on stage, I find a lot of times that the guests, the level of anxiety is raised. We've got like 20 people milling around. We've got a camera on a crane. It's, you know, zooming in and out. And it just, it creates a super different vibe. And I love that show and we're going to keep doing it. And it's really extraordinary. Um, but I think that there's something that I really wanted to experiment with. What would it look like if it was just me and a guest, we were alone doing our thing. There's no one around. Um, what would that bring out? Where would it go? Less formal. Um, yeah. And so I thought that that would be really, really interesting. And so here we sit, man. So your background is super fascinating. I see we're wearing a shirt. This is child of an immigrant. Yes. Um, give us like a super quick thumbnail. Like what's the background? Super quick. Uh, my parents are from Punjab, which is the north part of India. And they came in the 70s to Toronto, Canada. Uh, my dad had a master's degree in economics, but immediately in Toronto, he had to find labor jobs because he couldn't afford to go to school and didn't have the time either with the new family. Why, do you, why Toronto? Um, I, I have no idea why they make the choices they make, but I feel like at that point, they thought that's where the opportunities were in the early 70s. And um, even though he had education, he came and he worked in a furniture factory for a bit and then he became a cab driver and he drove cab for about 30 years until he retired. And... Uh, my mother worked at the Kellogg's factory in, uh, for about two years, and then she hurt her shoulder. And then after that, she had to be stay at home. Mm -hmm. and, but that started her journey into spirituality. She spent more time uh, learning about Sikh heritage and, and Sikh history and going to the temples and kind of sharing all the cool stories. So we're very martial people, so we have a lot of stories about cool battles and <laughs> people getting their heads cut off and everything. So me being a little kid, loved hearing all the stories. And that kind of got us into Sikh heritage. Um, and there was always a stress on education. So when I finished university, it was about, I didn't know, you know, go to school, get employed. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do my MBA. One of mm. my family friends did that, got a cool job at Nike. Thought that's how you do it. Um, fell in love with the idea of potentially doing something else that'd be more interesting. My sister recommended I go get into teaching. Uh, we were watching Boston Public, that TV show. Was on. She's like, you'd be a really good teacher. I had helped out with a lot of kids camps. She's like, you're good with kids. Um, pretty much forged a year worth of volunteer experience from a teacher friend, Whoa. applied within like three weeks, had no idea how competitive it was in Canada to get to teacher's college, mm. uh, ended up in teacher's college. My first degree was uh, IT, so I was coding and doing math. 
and uh, started working as an elementary school teacher. You were teaching coding and math? No, I was my, my first degree, my undergrad was uh, information technology. So uh, I, I see, was I see, gotcha. JavaScript and all that fun stuff. I just posted something, I think last night, that was a quote from Elon Musk, and it said, um, you're paid in direct proportion to the difficulty of the problems you solve. And there was this huge thread from teachers yeah. going, what about us? We're paid fuck all. And it was really interesting. What's your take on like, where like do you think teachers are underpaid overpaid it's an impossible job like that you want to talk about an area i would never go into like that seems like the world's a most thankless job and b just overwhelming in fact because i did teach for a while but i was teaching adults which was a lot easier but it was it was an inhuman amount of work it's definitely a thankless job i think from an economic standpoint i don't agree when teachers complain about how much they make i think uh, i mean warren buffett said a long time ago he said you know uh, somebody who can swing a bat very well is always going to get paid more than somebody who teaches your children. And, you know, a can that says Coca-Cola or 7-Up is always going to be worth more than the 35 cent. Uh, it's, it's always going to get purchased more than the 35 cent no-name brand cola because mm. there's a certain reputation or something attached to it. Um, I start to, I personally believe that people are going to get paid more um, when they can do what other people can't. You know, if everybody can mop the floor, then mopping the floor is not going to pay very well. Um, if you can if you can swing a bat you know from a 90 90 mile an hour pitch and you can hit it out of the park they're going to pay you a lot more mm. um if you can step into the octagon and and take elbows to the head and fight <laughs> back you'll probably get paid a lot more uh if you can do brain surgery you'll get paid a lot more if you can figure out a way to tell jokes and make people laugh and people actually want to show up to your shows you'll probably end up getting paid more mm. so i think what do you think about that though like when you say that you don't agree when people complain about it like i go to the very notion of complaining like the notion of complaining to yeah. me is a problem like i get it yeah and so i taught for i don't know off and on maybe for a year and a half two okay. years and it was so much fucking work like i would work all day i would come home and i would um have to do my, I would have to basically learn at night to go back and have enough to teach people. Yeah. And I thought, what the fuck? And then my sister-in-law was a teacher and, and it, she was like working around the clock. But my thing is, if that's what the market is willing to pay, like you're asking society to change their values. Yeah. And my thing is, I, I am so glad some people approach it that way. And I'm actually really curious to know like how much of a political stance you take on things. Like as somebody who raps, like do you come at that angle? But like, that's never going to be me. I just don't find that interesting. I always turn inward. So when I think about, all right, this pisses me off that things are this way, like teachers not getting enough money. Maybe this makes me a selfish prick. But my answer is, well, then I'm going to go learn to do the thing, like you're saying, that people are willing to pay for if money is something that's interesting to me. Then I'm going to go solve that problem. It just doesn't make sense to me to spend my time pissed at a system. Yeah. Oh, I I 100% agree. I don't think there's a lot of value in complaining. I mean, even venting for for some folks. And I think especially with that, especially when it comes to things like teaching, it's like you you came in a template, you, you did the education, you went through the process, and now everything you're given a salary and it's kind of presented in front of you. There's no surprises when it comes to that. Mm. And it does become supply and demand. And especially in Canada, uh, teachers are paid much better than they are paid here. But a lot of students from Toronto are going to these American colleges in Buffalo and they're paying, you know, 30, 40 grand to get their their teacher's degrees. And that overflows, you know, the supply in Mm. comparison to the demand. So now, you know, the school boards and everybody have way more qualified teachers than they need in terms of, you know, the population of the kids, the families and the neighborhoods. And none of these people want to teach in these rural neighborhoods where they have a, a, a they need teachers. Everyone mm. wants to teach in the city. 
So then, you know, just straight, simple supply and demand come into hand, you know, come into factor. And I always, the more I think about that, it's just like, okay, it really is how much value you can bring to the world. And whether you're thinking about it consciously or not, the more value you bring to the world, the more resources are given to you to continue bringing value. And we don't get to decide what the world deems valuable. That's the crazy thing. And that was the thing in, and it's funny that Warren Buffett used the exact same example. Maybe this is why somebody used it in my Instagram feed. They said like, what the fuck, a, you know, a baseball player is getting paid $120 million or whatever yeah. um, for hitting a round ball. And I just thought, yes, but there are economics there. Yeah. Like the, the people are willing to pay for that. And so now it becomes a question of what do you do when the world is way the fuck out of step with you? And to me, it's really interesting to watch how people respond to that because I'm not saying that like there aren't deep and troubling flaws with the way that the world has played out. Yeah. I'm just saying every one of us has to ask like, what do we do when we're faced with that? Yeah. Do we, cause there are people who really try to change the system. Just not interesting to me, man. Like it, yeah, like that shout out to Ralph Nader. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so to me, like that kind of thing, well, I guess the, the great irony of my life is as I was going to answer the question, the, the, when I really look at changing value system and the irony of the fact that I didn't think of this when I was first answering it is not lost on me, but my whole thing with impact theory is that it's a generational play. Yeah. So there's no way that I can have the kind of impact on one person, like one generation that I want to have. Yeah. Like the only way that you're going to have that kind of impact is if you burrow into somebody's mind and then they pass it on to their kids and then they pass it on to their kids. Mm. And the way that culture stacks, which is so fucking interesting to me yeah. and it's something that I think people don't think enough about. Yeah. Like, in fact, this is interesting for you as somebody who's in hip hop. It's like when you look at the simplicity of the rhymes from the 80s and now just where we are, it's not that those people weren't capable of doing what they do now. It's that they didn't have somebody before them to show them like the complex rhythms that you can use. Yeah, we build upon each other. Yeah. Yeah, that that's super interesting. Going from like the nursery rhymes to like then Rock Him came and, and just blew people's minds that he was doing multisyllable rhymes. And then you had someone like Biggie doing what Rock Him was doing, but then also adding in humor. And then mm. all of a sudden you had Ja Rule coming in and he was just singing and rapping. And now you see the evolution. And then Kanye West drops 808s and Heartbreaks. And then that just spawns off your Travis Scott's, your Drake's, and all these new artists that come in. Mm. And then, you know, T Pain comes in with the auto tune and, and, and cements it into the culture. And you see that and i mean definitely that's the case i was actually i got i was lucky enough to go with lily to the um, all-star game and you know sitting courtside you get to meet all, a lot of these rappers and i got to meet two chains and i was telling him i said you know i'm as a south asian i'm, I'm i feel like we in our, the artistic world and even in the entrepreneurial world are about 30 years behind uh, african-american folks in terms of what messaging we're trying to get out we don't have that kendrick lamar nor do we have that jay-z we don't have this leadership yet mm. to set it up and i'm really and i've told him like, i'm taking notes from how you guys are doing it and how you guys are working together when okay meek mills in jail jay-z's uh, you know, funding that, uh, his legal defense fund. Now, you know, Nipsey Hussle just, pa just passed away. You know, Jay-Z went and helped set up a trust fund for his children. Like, Whoa, this I didn't community, know that. Yeah, like a $15 million trust Whoa. fund. Whoa! Yeah. Wow. They saw that. And, and, but, and, but there's a history, like, when Nipsey Hussle, like, he first came to prominence because he sold a mixtape for uh, $100 each. Mm -hmm. He printed up 1,000 CDs, sold them for $100 each because he studied uh, the scarcity principle. And Jay-Z found that so, you know, fascinating. They took this risk that he went and he bought a uh, hundred copies mm. so there's always this you know support of the entrepreneur and saying hey it's each one teach one i see what you're doing it took me 10 years to get here let me see if i can get you to do it in five right you know so an artist like me you know went to school went to university did the job did everything his immigrant parents asked him to do then he had his um 
existential crisis and then you know let it all go and became the artist i was supposed to be mm. now the question is what can whoa, I whoa, do? Whoa, whoa. so walk me through that so you have the existential crisis meaning i'm not having fun teaching i don't like this i'm not fulfilled um i think my dialogue for the longest time was how do, how do people how do artists make a living and you know i was doing spoken word poetry and making music on youtube for fun and you know way to meet girls and just have <laughs> literally just fun like what what do you do after work i don't have homework what do i do mm. after work and what i did was i took a second job tutoring kids and i started making a really good secondary income off that and i was like all right i got some money uh, let's go downtown on the weekends and have some fun went to a spoken word concert once uh saw the guy on stage and he just spit some beautiful bars and i was just like i can do this and this is probably a great way to meet girls and that was literally it, it was just supposed to be something fun and then put some stuff on youtube uh a friend invited me with him to be his plus one at some party felt like i was crashing everybody knew who i was because they saw me on youtube and mm. you know that fed the ego a little bit more so for me it was like all right this is feeding my ego this is an icebreaker i don't got to introduce myself to people because most people know who i am mm. at least in my little pocket in my little my right. community um and then take it serious and then i'd go to events with other artists and these guys are like filling out grant applications working odd jobs here there and this is like before uber and, and just other types of uh jobs that you know maybe creatives would benefit from taking while mm. they're on their come up and i was like i don't want to live like these guys i like my my current life of making this much as a teacher this much as a tutor. we are the same dude yeah. so in filmmaking, you see a lot of people do the starving artist thing. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not working my way up on set. And mm -hmm. that's what, you know, so many people graduated film school. And that was like their shtick. They're going to start as a PA. And then they're going to work their way up. And then hopefully one day they're writing and directing. And I was like, fuck that. Yeah. Like, I, it, for me, it's either I'm doing something else or I'm directing. But I'm not doing like the schlepping cables for 10 years in the hopes that I get my break. That just seemed crazy to me. Yeah. And so I was like... You know, I'm going to make a play to try to write, to try to get something done. And the like the way that my life played out has always been an echo of that. Like yeah. the thing that I want to do has to be like in and of itself has got to be interesting. And so and quite frankly, just like total control freaky. Like yeah. I, I did not want to be a starving artist. I did not want other people to have control over my art. Like I, I went to extraordinary lengths to retain control. And, and what that also forces you to do is not be on the template. Because that's how you're told that, hey, you want to be an actor or an actress or you want to be a director. You got to pay mm. your dues. Here's the template. You want to be a doctor. Here's the template. Here's here's the path. I wish I'd been that smart. I was too dumb to follow the template. And I actually mean that sincerely. I had no sense of like yeah. what the other than to go be a PA and work my way up. But yeah. I wish I had been doing it because I was so clever that I was going to buck the system. Um, I think I was too lazy to carry cables. That's like the God's honest truth. But I mean, isn't it Bill Gates that said hire lazy people to find yes. a better way to solve problems? And I mean, again, you didn't follow the template. I mean, I think you're doing all right. It worked out okay. The funny <laughs> thing is, so I always tell people like, when people hear my story in reverse, like you, yeah. you see the punchline that I end up being successful. But at the time, all I had was shame. I had shame, I had self-doubt, I had confusion, I felt lost. Um, for almost two years, I slept on an air mattress that had a fucking leak. It would have only cost me $20 to replace it. I, and I was so like broke, I didn't want to spend the money. So I would blow it up every night, no matter how fucking tired I was, I would blow this air mattress up. By the morning, I used to put clothes under the bed because by the morning, it'd be completely flat. And so I'd, and, and this is fucking true. My bed was half in a closet and half out because I had to share a room. So there was the, the track for the closet door. Yeah. So when I would wake up on the floor, I was on the track. So I put clothes all over the place so that I wouldn't wake up and feel the metal in my side. But that's like that. 
it's where this shit started. I think it's so ironic that you're wearing that Batman hat because I'm just thinking in my head, I'm like, this guy's Bruce Wayne. He probably sleeps on the floor. <laughs> you probably sleep on the floor now in your house. Here's the thing. So Bruce Wayne like really means something to me. Yeah. And I wish, like I do a lot of things to try to emulate Bruce Wayne. But if you're really deep in the lore of like how badass that motherfucker is, yeah. learning to read lips in Russian is my favorite um, Bruce Wayne story. But no, I'm not that hardcore. But I do fuck with cold showers. You do. That, you do. Okay, dude, so you're, you're one of those guys who's like, hey, I'm going to actively make myself uncomfortable. 1,000%. And, and do all of these things, you know. And, and is there a nostalgia factor to that? Or this no. is just you just trying to find it, stuff to challenge It is 100% I don't want to do it. Like the, the thing about self-worth and self-respect, like the first time I, did you ever um, hear of or read the book, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It? No, I haven't. It's actually, I so want it to be true. And the guy that wrote it, it, it seemed to really have changed his life. And so for people that it works for, I'm so stoked. But that would not have worked for me. And I think for a lot of people, it won't. And the punchline is basically, you have to start just by telling yourself that you love yourself. Telling yourself you love yourself over and over and over. Look in the mirror and say you love yourself. And my thing is, A, it's better than the alternative. If that's crowding out a negative voice, that's rad. It's a nice step. But the reality is, if you really want to have self-worth, if you want to have self-respect, if you want to value yourself, you have to earn it. You have to do something that you value. Yes. You have to do yes. something that makes you feel like you have fucking worth. Yes. And one of the things, instantaneously, dude, instantaneously, if you can get yourself to follow through on something that you value but is hard, you will instantly feel that sense of like, whoa. So every day I start with basically three things that I do not want to do. And just in doing them, they make me feel good about myself. Number one, I get out of bed in 10 minutes or less. For some people, that's not hard. For me, that's fucking hard. And the deepest shame in my life was all around, I didn't want to get out of bed for hours and hours and hours on end. And yeah, anyway, that's a very dark period in my life. I've talked about it before. So that's number one. I, give my, I have a rule. I'm out of bed in 10 minutes or less. Number two, I work out. I do not enjoy working out in any way, shape, or form, but I do it. And then number three, I take a fucking cold shower. The cold shower by far is the one that messes with me the most. Yeah. And it's actually the one, it's number two in my consistency. I'm deadly consistent on 10 minutes or less. I'm probably 95% consistent on the cold shower. And then working out is actually the one I'm least consistent. But doing those things like actually gives me self-worth. Nothing, it's, it's not the success, it's not the money. Those things can't fucking touch self-worth, man. It's that Jordan Peterson idea of fix, you know, tackle the pile of paper on your desk. Thousand percent. You know, just doing something that you've been dreading to do. The more you do that, that will probably, you know, give you more fulfillment than even chasing a passion. You know, that, that's kind of the idea he had there. So let me ask you this. If you start to acclimate and now cold showers is your norm. I have a buddy mm. who went, you know, to get through after he got through with some three years of uh, addiction with drinking. Uh, he lives in Berlin. He went to a farm in Portugal and he and he worked with the farmhands. And then um, he went and taught in Palestine for a couple of months. And he just that learned just how to the live chills. there. Sorry? That just gave me the chills. That's so smart. And I never would have thought. Yeah. But yeah. I don't. And I don't think he read it out of a book. I think mm. he literally just wanted to do it and he left and did it. And then when I went to go visit him, um, I'm in his apartment and I was like, is your heat broken? And he's like, <laughs> oh, no, uh, I just don't turn it on. I just got used to it like this. Mm. And I was just like, I'm like, you're like a real life magical monk right now. You don't, you've just gotten to this point. Like, it's kind of like, you know, if you stop, it's hard to not eat sugar, but if mm. you go months without eating sugar, you'll, you'll acclimate to it. So if you get to the point where like cold showers is your norm, 
um, you know, for me, you know, I, I drink black coffee or, and I try to have like no carbs in the morning and now I'm used to it. Like I enjoy my breakfast. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the black coffee and, and I'm, I'm not create, it's not discipline for me anymore for that. I got used to it. I, do you have a list of like, well, what's the next thing going to be that I'm going to do? <sighs> I guess it's confession time. So there's one thing that haunts me. I'm not committed to it. I talk about it though, because it weighs on my mind. Okay. Open water terrifies me more than anything in this world. And I got invited to speak at this open water thing. And I promised my team. By open water, you just mean like a lake? The or a open fucking ocean. Like the ocean. Okay. Yeah. So this guy was a free diver, meaning no scuba gear. You just hold your breath and you fucking dive as deep as you can. And these guys die all the time. Because they, if once you're halfway, dude, if you misjudge and you go a little too far, there's no making it back. It's already too late. Like you're already dead once you turn around if you've waited too long. Uh, so anyway, that shit freaks me out. The movie Open Water is my greatest nightmare. Have you seen that movie? No, I haven't. Holy fuck. And it's based on a true story. Okay. And it's this couple. They get on a boat to go scuba diving. They go out. Every, they do the head count. They go down. You always go with a partner. They go with each other. The guy miscounts. When they come back up, they think they have everybody, but they don't. So they resurface. The boat is fucking gone. And they don't realize that they've left people out there until God knows how long, three hours later or something. Then they get back in the boat and they try to find them, but the currents have taken them so far, they never find them. And the movie is is literally just these two people bobbing up and down in the fucking water and like how terrifying it is to not be able to see what's beneath you. And oh my God, dude, the real life story that it's based on, they end up um, their like dive board. I guess you have like a whiteboard essentially with them and it shows up and I think... I, I may be misremembering this part. It shows up and it says something. If, if I remember right, it says sharks. And so it's like, oh God, like that, that freaks me out so much. So to your point, like that's the one thing like in the back of my mind, I'm always like at some point in my life, I'm gonna need to do that. So anyway, I get this speaking gig. I tell my team, I will, within my code of ethics, I'll do anything to, to make this business successful because I so believe in the fucking mission. So I get offered this thing. It is my greatest fear. So I say yes. It's within my code of ethics, right? So thank God it got canceled. (laughs) And I was like, thank you, like whoever is watching. But you took the baby step to say yes. Yeah, I said yes. That counts. and, And I was very proud of myself. But when I say I was relieved to the core of my being when it got canceled, I was relieved. But so that that's the thing that hangs in the back of my mind. Cold exposure in particular. Um, it's really, really interesting because you actually develop what they call brown fat. So your your normal adipose tissue, which is white fat, it's not thermogenic. It doesn't generate a lot of heat. I mean, it's probably got insulation properties, yeah. but it doesn't generate heat. But brown fat actually generates heat. It is. It has, I think it's happening, like it has an increased metabolic rate or something. Anybody that knows about this right now is rolling over because I'm sure I'm <laughs> fucking this up. But it's basically- from Neil deGrasse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, come on, man, what the fuck? Um, so, but it, it becomes thermogenic. And there was this woman who did exactly what your man in Portugal he's in, did. He's in Berlin right now, yeah. Okay, so she did all this cold exposure, slept in Alaska with the window open in winter, only took cold ex- cold showers. Also, she could, drum roll please, swim the fucking Bering Strait, Holy the space shit. between Russia and Alaska. Yeah. Holy shit. That's crazy. But that's how much the human body can adapt. Yeah, we're a lot more resilient than we realize. We're, that getting, is we're getting real soft out truth. here now that our, you know, we have no predators and we have not a lot of danger. So now all of our fears that we're... You know, fear used to be here to protect us from real physical danger. And now mm. it's all just like, well, what are people going to think? Oh, what happens if I do something different? Oh, no. What if I, you know, recycle that outfit? What if my <laughs> Instagram picture don't get enough likes? 
Yeah, talk to me about that manifesting in, in, themselves. in context of what you did. So you talk about this breaking of the template thing, which I actually find really interesting. So you've bucked it pretty hard. Yeah. Um, you tried I to bucked it involuntarily. I was like you, but things didn't go my way. <laughs> so I said, I don't want to be a starving artist. I never want to be a starving artist. And then um, uh, somebody that making making music with is like, hey, I got us a deal. We're going to write music for all these kids. And, and, you know, they can't write music, but they got they got rich daddies and, they, you know, they're going to pay for us to write all this music for them. And they're going to put it out and we'll get like 10 grand a song. We'll be good. And I was like, oh, that's more than I make as a teacher. You're going to you're going to pay me 120 grand for this one album. That's way Whoa. more than I make as a teacher. Let's do it. So, you know, no due diligence, no asking any questions, just seeing a PDF, you know, uh, contract I signed and I mm-hmm. told my, my job I got to go. And I left at the end of 2010. And then all of 2011 was. Uh, Living the beautiful artist life, thinking at any moment this 120 grand was coming. So I'm just wiping credit cards, living off a line of credit. Um, the, the five years that I had taught, I had purchased a, a property that I'd rented out as, as an investment, kicked my tenant out, and now I'm living in there. And it's completely just, you know, no furniture, s- sitting on lawn chairs, uh, making music, just being like, but the, the money's coming. And being mm. a purist artist, because I feel like I'm, I'm financially taken care of. Took about a year of denial to realize the money wasn't coming. Oh, yeah. So all of 2011, I just accrued about eighty thousand dollars worth oh, of debt. Oh God. Yeah, and uh, the guy who that had the deal or brought the deal to my table, the second I I, I caught him in a, in a big lie, he just literally disappeared, and he was living with me. So he disappeared w- with oh. whatever was on his back. Like he left everything in his room and never came back because he realized that. Whoa. Like he had crossed a big line, and I'm to this day I don't know what his main motivation was. I think he was trying to do some sort of, hey, borrow money from this guy and borrow money from this guy. Because I think he did kind of believe in my talents, and he thought he could manipulate this long enough for eventually to pay itself off. But he got caught in a lie, and he just disappeared, like completely disappeared. That's crazy. Yeah. So I just felt completely betrayed, heartbroken. I never had my heart broken from a guy. I considered <laughs> him a brother, mm. and I was and I was over girls at this point. I had my heart broken too many times by them. So I was like, hey, you know, let me have this brotherly love. I don't have any brothers uh, in real life. So I was heartbroken, and I was blaming everybody. Like, you know, how come you guys didn't tell me he was shady? How come you, nobody warned me? Mm. And what am I supposed to do? At the same time, I was very uh, ashamed, as you know, as, as you've experienced as well. Didn't want to tell my family. So now I'm in isolation, not telling anybody what's happening. My public profile is still growing. People are learning who Humble the Poet is. And, mm. you know, I'm getting a gig in like Fresno, California. or I'm getting flown out to India to do a gig, but Whoa. like breaking even on the shows. You know, India will pay you. Are you doing hip hop or are you doing spoken word? Hip hop. This is straight hip hop. Um, in India, they, they, you know, they have a, they have a, a massive English speaking population mm. and they dig it. They consider me punk rock out there. I was just making high level hip hop energy and just it's going wild on stage. But I wasn't earning. I was, my, my public profile was growing, but I, was, I wasn't earning, nor did I know how to earn. I didn't mm. know what to do. So by the end of 2011 is when I finally came to that realization that shit, that check isn't coming. Mm. You need to figure something out. And then it was about two weeks of just sitting in, um, sitting in bed, lying in bed, avoiding all phone calls. Um, my debt wasn't just to the banks. My debt was to friends, people I really cared about. Um, I'm, I'm drinking NyQuil every day, taking muscle relaxers, oh. and just literally hoping for the Calvary to come. Just someone mm. to come save me from all this. Um, nobody came. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> And at one point, I just had music playing. It was a J. Cole at a dollar in a dream. And he has one line in there. He goes, are you going to let this, are you going to allow this to turn you bitter and cold? Mm-hmm. Are you going to flip that last fucking dollar and turn it to a dream? And I think 
a combination of that line, I don't want to make it sound too romantic. I think it was a combination of that line and the two weeks in bed because I was probably healing from my pain. Mm. Uh, I got up and I just said in my head, fuck this, sink or swim. Fuck all those Tumblr quotes. Fuck all these ideas that, oh, there's, you know, God closes the door and opens the window. <laughs> God has a plan for you or, 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 or great things are just lying beneath her, uh, beyond the horizon and all this just fluffy bullshit. I was like, no, it's sink or swim. You, you, you want to have a vacation now? Go back to your day job. Um, you know, you don't take any shots. You're not going to score any goals. Just do it. You know, you can, you're either making progress or you're making excuses. And I was very, very harsh on myself. But at, at that point, that's what I needed. I took all these things and I pasted them all over my wall. And I just looked at them and I just got to work. And I was like, what do I need to do? And I remember maybe four years prior, I had uh, at a restaurant... I had met some real estate mogul who had owned, you know, he owned a lot of property in Canada and he was an old Italian immigrant. And he's like, you don't make money by buying a lot of stuff. You make money by saving it. He goes, I got rich by saving my money. So instead of me being like, how do I make money? I was like, where can I cut my, my expenses? I sold the place. I sold all my recording equipment. I sold everything that I could. I sold clothes. I sold all his stuff. I sold everything that I could. And I moved back home with mom and dad. And I was you know, 30 and super Dude. ashamed thinking I'd never get laid again, <laughs> thinking that, you know, this is the worst. And the, the, the strength that I found was facing fears. And the big fear was admitting I fucked up, knowing that most people, when you admit, like, you know, Hey, how are you doing? We always lie. We say, I'm fine. Right. This time I was like, no, nah, I'm not good. Like I'm, I have a lot of debt. I don't know how I'm going to make any money. Mm. Uh, I messed up. That deal didn't go well. I trusted the wrong people and it, it, they weren't master manipulators. They just told me what I wanted to hear. And, you know, I had the rosy colored glasses on and I fell for that shit. And being open and saying that to people, nobody mm. expects to hear that. And most people were supportive. Some weren't. Some were like, I told you so. Oh, I oh. knew it all along. And I had to own that. Mm. And I'm like, no, don't feel sorry for yourself. Own it. And I think the, the, the big shift for me and going back to our original uh, concept of complaining was power only exists when you take responsibility. Fuck yes. If I blame Tom for all my problems, then Tom has all the power. If I take ownership for my problems, now I have the power to fix it. Right. And sometimes the only power I have is to adjust my expectations or adjust my attitude or increase my effort. But that's better than nothing. That's better than feeling like the victim. And, you know, I was talking about this earlier with somebody else. It's, we, we all need to feel connected. So self-pity is a great way to feel connected, you know, connected with ourselves. Mm. Nobody knows what it feels like to, to be betrayed by somebody except for me. And I caught myself doing that. And I said, no, I had to take responsibility for this. I had to call everybody I owed money to. I said, look, you know, I owe you 10 grand. I don't have the 10 grand, but I don't want to avoid you. But I right. promise you, you'll Respect. also, you're not going to see me spending money. Right. You're not going to see me anywhere. You're not going to see me at you know that guy's uh bachelor party in cancun you're not going to see me anywhere until you get your money right. i don't have it i'm going to figure it out but i need you to know that i'm not going to be that guy who avoids you i'm not going to run away from this mm. and it took me four years and i clawed and scraped myself and, and again i don't want to gloss over that part and that involved selling all my stuff right. that involved um um getting you know applying for different grants gigs were coming money was slowly coming in making a thousand dollars a show this is that adding it all up everything went to owing the people in my life mm. paying them all off the banks could fuck off and wait <laughs> and eventually i paid all the, the humans that i cared about and once i paid them off I, there was a big sense of pride there mm. that i was able to face this like an adult yeah. face everyone look them in the eye and do that 
And it took another two years to, to get to a zero bank account. I think it was the end of 2014 I had a zero bank account. And that was just my moment of like, ah. Wow. And, that, and I mean, and, I, and I've seen you speak about, you know, the, the moment you got your big check and how long that lasted. And it was the same thing. It was right. like for years waiting for that moment to hit mm. zero and how happy I was going to be. And it was like, yeah, that lasted about 18 <laughs> minutes. And now I'm like, what's next? But yeah. the gift from that as well was, hey, I had to learn how to be. I was an involuntary minimalist. Mm. And, you know, when money started coming in, I didn't adjust my lifestyle accordingly. I just I stayed the nice simpleton that yeah. I was. Um, also, if you figure out how to go from negative 80 to zero, then you know how to go from zero to 80 and, and yeah. go for it. So every year since then has, you know, gratefully been I've been doing very well. Uh, every single year has been going better mm. and better from the principles I learned about getting out of debt. So now I'm grateful for all of it for happening. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions, and I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing, and a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com.
In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think a lot of people, when they go through something like that, they're one, most people don't take the risk, which by the way, you leaving your job to go do that without like doing a shit ton of due diligence, you have my applause. I, when people aren't willing to take a risk yeah. because you can always back out of it, right? You can always go back. Like you didn't even have to go back. You found another way to yeah. not only get from zero to something, but claw yourself the fuck out of a crazy. Hey, but world. I want to be honest. At one point I almost did. I went back to the principal of maybe two years and I was like, Hey, and, and again with my pride, Hey, you know, <laughs> having a lot of fun doing this art and music, but you know, I miss the kids. Right. I really miss the kids. You know, can you, you know, can you guys get me back in and, and God bless her. She said, you know, I think this was uh, September. I, I came to her in July. I said, can I come back in September? She said, listen, I have a place for you, but it would be so much easier for me because you'd be making me give somebody bad news in September mm. if you came in January. I can shuffle around the staff. Can you come back in January? I'm like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Walked out of her office. It's like, you need to figure this shit out before January because you're right. not going back. You're not going back. You don't get to quit because the problem now is you're still a local celebrity. So every day you leave your house, someone's going to be like, hey, humble the poet. Right. You want to quit that and, and hear that for the rest, at least for the next 10 years until you blow your brains out? <laughs> or do you want to uh, do it? And I just said, forget it. This is who I'm going to be. Mm. And if it means I'll die in the next two years doing it, then let's, let's, if everything must go, then go. You know, and, and, that, and that became my, my thing. Is Lauren Hill, Out These Boxes, that song. And she goes, if everything must go, then go. That's how I choose to live. And I'm just like, this is it. I'm doing this until the dirt, whether the dirt is going to happen in two years, whether that dirt's going to be in a hundred years. This is all I'm going to do. There is nothing else. I'm all in. And yeah. it, it came slowly and there was fear. There were relapses. Um, you know, a lot of people do say, how did you pull the trigger? You know, you took the risk. I'm like, no, I, I, I got I fell for a scheme. You know, I fell for a dream, but I'm grateful it happened because mm. otherwise I was like, I'm not leaving until I get something that's worth more than my salary. And, and it took it took somebody, you know, to lie and betray me to get me to, to live my real authentic life. That's really interesting. So I went um, 
when I was teaching, I had an offer to leave that, which ultimately ends up in me working with the guys who will become my partners and yeah. quest and all of that. So of course it plays out very well. But at the time people were like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you've got a great job. Like you're teaching film, you know, it's like close to what you want to do. Uh, why would you take this risk and go with these guys? And I was like, what? Like, it, to me, it, that didn't even make sense. Like, yeah. here were these two guys that were really successful. They were going to teach me how to do business. They were going to help me get control of my own life. Like, to me, it just, there was no real risk in that. So I was like, I can always go back to teaching. But even now, like, one thing when you say, yeah, I was afraid and I thought about going back. Even now, in my life, there are moments where I'm afraid. Mm. There are moments where I'm like, fuck, am I doing the right thing? Like, yeah. this is this really how I want to spend my life? Like, the last six weeks of my life have been the busiest six weeks of my life, bar none. I have never worked this hard or been this busy. And that makes you go, what the fuck am I doing this for? Mm. Like, I've already been successful. Like, this is not about the money, for sure. Yeah. So, why am I willing to work this hard? And that voice, that question, that never goes away, yeah. right? You're always going to have fear. You're always going to have doubts. There's always going to be times where you have to realign your life where you start to go askew and you've got to bring yourself back. So people living in fear of that, like my thing is be afraid of not taking a risk. Be afraid of not trying. Be afraid of never getting to develop your potential, of never having that moment where you're like, I'm doing what I was meant to do. I'm in a flow state. Like I'm, I feel alive. Yeah. And that's always been my obsession. Like what makes me feel alive? Yeah. I want to go do more of that shit. Yeah. And so few people like ever allow themselves to get to that point. Cause it's hard. It's fucking scary. And by the way, you're probably going to suck balls at it. And so you're going to have to face that. You're going to have yeah. to face your insecurities of, Oh, I suck at this. And I've got to now put in the energy to get good at this. Yeah. And so that to me is like super interesting. Like, do you, as somebody who's trying, I mean, fuck, man, like in terms of where you're at from a South Asian hip hop perspective, like, is that ever something that weighs on you where you're like, Jesus, am I the right person to be the ambassador for this? Or is it just like you're so in love with it, you're going to do it no matter with what? With the hip hop, definitely not. I, I am the ambassador for this. And I, I'm just hoping I have enough time on this earth for everyone else to realize that this, that's without question. I mean, and that's. That's the, the prerequisite for hip-hop. Hip-hop is not an open door. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the culture. <laughs> hip-hop is stand your ground. Let everybody know that you're here. Challenge everyone to try to push you off your, your, your pedestal. Mm. And if you fall off, get back on. It's not a, it is not a welcoming you know, type of environment. And it shouldn't be. It is completely competitive. And In the, what way is it not welcoming? Like what's actually happened? Um, I think, it's, I think it's, it, it, it thrives off its competitive nature. It's, it's probably it's, it's a sport. You know, you, like, do you get called out for like rap battles? Like, what are we talking about? I have. Here? I mean, in, 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 you know, in the early years, definitely. It's the second I got a platform, you know, other artists would reach out for favors or what have you. And if you don't give them the favor they want or, you know, most recently, probably like a year ago, an artist uh, who I've had nothing but positive interactions with, not even remotely a negative interaction with, ever, ever released a whole song attacking me. Whoa. And I had no idea why not even like an inkling like sitting there like I, I, I talked to your best friend a month ago and that was a boring conversation like I texted him saying hey do you know a studio in this neighborhood he's like nah man sorry I don't I'm like alright cool like a boring conversation mm. no indication that there was an issue and I think maybe six months later someone was like yeah he had released a song and you didn't share it 
And I'm sitting there like, I didn't even know he released a song. I right. didn't, he didn't ask me to do anything. And realizing that, you know, he's telling his story, not mine. You know, the same way these guys are like, aren't you afraid you're leaving a good job? They're telling you their story. Right. They're, they're projecting their insecurities on you. And some of that stuff internalizes with us. So for me, I think I thrive off that level of competition. And for me, I find it fun. It's no different than if we started playing poker. Mm. Some people don't like playing with me because I talk a lot of shit during <laughs> poker. You know, if I win a big hand and I didn't have good cards, everyone's going to see it. Mm. I'm going to tease people for it. I'm going to make nicknames. I, I enjoy the shit talk. I grew up in a neighborhood like that, so I enjoy that type of competition. I did start out with rap battles. Humble the Poet itself, uh, I originally started with the name Humble. And then in a rap battle, I said, you know, rappers are simple. MCs are more complicated. I'm better than all y'all. I'm the poet. And then I ended up winning this big tournament. And then I changed my name to Humble the Poet to rub it in. So the irony <laughs> of calling yourself Humble, but it actually being a very cocky name that mm. was inspired by a lot of spite. Um, so for me, I love it for that. I mean, I've become a multidiscipline artist. Um, I mean, going through that process of, in my struggling years, you know, at the same time, I didn't even know how people in music made money. I used to like ask artists, well, how are you making money? And a couple of guys in the UK are like, well, you know, when they play your music on the radio, you get like 50 cents a spin. That's how I make my money. And I was like, that doesn't sound like much. Then my studio engineer got in a fight with his girlfriend, stopped picking up the calls. Um, the guy who shot my videos got in a fight with his wife, stopped picking up the calls. And then I was like, I don't know how to, how to record my own music. I don't know how to shoot a video. I don't know how to do anything. And, you know, luckily I had this new friend, you know, this, this young lady by the name of Lily Singh who had just started YouTube. And we had just, you know, hung out for the first time. We're, 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 I'm eating Thai food in, in her neighborhood. And she's like, well, I, I set up a tripod and I make my own videos and I edit them. And I learned how to edit by myself. She goes, I suggest you do something that you can do by yourself mm. and you won't have to wait on anybody. Smart. She goes, I don't have to wait on anybody and I can work whenever I work. And if the work doesn't get done, it's my fault. Mm. And it, it was another pound in my head, personal responsibility, take ownership. So I was like, well, what can I do? Because my ego was still like, you know, you, if you're going to produce, you need to produce like these world-class producers that you work with. If you need to record, you need to be an engineer because your buddy went to this, the New York School of Engineering. And, you know, you don't know how to do any of this. You don't even know how to use GarageBand. So I wrote. I just started writing. And I was writing on Facebook. And I would just like find a picture that I thought was inspiring off of like Reddit or something. And I would just post a picture. And like one picture was a picture of a, a monkey feeding a baby tiger with a bottle. And then I just write about love. And then and it was it uh, prose or was it poetry? Prose. OK. Yeah. Because the thing was, I only wrote in poetry and I only wrote in rhyme. And now the idea was put, why don't you just write in prose, which is much simpler mm. in comparison to what I was doing before. And I was like, OK. So it kind of felt like just vomiting out ideas. Right. And I just I, I had read an article from some blogger who said he blogged every day for a year. And the number one question was like, didn't you run out of ideas to write about? And he's mm. like, just try it. You won't run out of ideas. So I just took that as the challenge. And every single day I wrote and I just found a picture and, and I had a folder of just pictures during my procrastination. And I just wrote. And in the meantime, I was trying to figure out how to make some money doing, you know, everything and anything at that point. And about six months into it, you know, I had a, I had a fan base of about maybe 50,000, 60,000 people on Facebook. They're like, you should write a book. And um, I'm like, I don't know how to write a book. And I don't know how, I don't have the money to write a book. I don't know any of this. I don't know anybody who has written a book. Mm. And then somebody sent me a link to Amazon CreateSpace. And was like, hey, these guys do print to order books. You don't even have to keep the books in your house. And then somebody else was like, hey, have you heard of Adobe InDesign? You know, I, I'll show you how to use it. And then a friend in Toronto who 
was making signs for like, you know, he, he had clients like Home Depot. He'd make their sales signs. He's like, mm. I can show you how to use InDesign. And then he taught me how to, how to build my book through InDesign. Didn't you turn your book into an international bestseller? Yeah. Did I, you do that while it was being self-published or did you have a publisher help you? Oh, no. So what, what happened was, so I, I self-published the book in 2013 uh, on Indiegogo. So I crowdfunded mm. and I said, hey, I don't know how to write this book. Um, I don't know how to build a book and I don't even know what it's going to cost. <laughs> it's a compelling pitch. It's a compelling pitch. But I said, hey, if you guys, you know, my relationship with you is all that matters. Mm. And if we do this and I don't have to be a sucker and, and sign to, you know, and I, and I was doing it for music as well. I don't have to sign to a record deal. I don't right. have to sign to a record label. I don't have to sign to a publisher because I don't want to get exploited and I don't have any leverage moving mm. in. Um, and you guys matter. And I want to keep this, you know, how much did you raise? Us. I raised $26,000. Whoa. 305 people. Wow. $26,000. My biggest contribution was $1,500 from a professor Not at down. Harvard who I had never met. Wow. And he just simply said, I was very happy to see an artist take business in their own hands. I went to go visit him and uh, his name is Kareem Lakani. I think he's a tenured professor now at Harvard. And uh, he had already, he had done his tenure in crowdsourcing. So he was the guy when NASA would be like, hey, we have these hard problems. Can you help solve it? And he was the guy who went into like the nerd communities and was like hey i have 25 grand who can ever solve this equation somebody would solve it in a matter of minutes they get the 25 grand he, he helps nasa out and like that he was already doing that so he was like well, you took crowdfunding not a lot of artists are taking crowdfunding to, to this level that you're trying mm. to do it and i was inspired by amanda palmer watching her story do it um and it was i was i was afraid to ask for help so me the, the for me the biggest accomplishment was overcoming the fear of asking for help and saying right. i need help to do this um, yeah, so I raised this 26 grand and it was simply saying, hey, uh, if you give me $1, I'll send you a folder of all the music I've ever made. If you give me $5, I'll send you a PDF of the book. Uh, if you send me $30, I'll send you a signed copy of the book. Send me $100, I'll, sign, I'll send you uh, a signed copy of the book, a t-shirt, and uh, we'll have a, a Skype date. Uh, $250, I'll send you a hardcover. I'm printing only 100 of them. I'm going to sign them and you have a hardcover. Mm. And um, actually, even in this, so I, I'll, and I'll get to that part. But so that was independent. I raised the 26 grand, which was a big accomplishment for me to uh, like, oh, I'm, I'm, a I'm, I'm struggling a lot less now. Now I can I can explore maybe doing something I like, right. you know, not just simply trying to make money. But what I end, what ended up happening was the self-publishing was so convenient because if I got a show in London, I could just go on Amazon order the books now and, and my cost was about four dollars and fifty cents a copy and i just shipped the box to, to to london to a friend's house and then i do the show and i sell the books for 20 pounds each and a book retains its value much better than like a cheesy t-shirt right at that time so it was a great way for me and, and i was learning the business of it so i started throwing my own shows that's another way i started earning money i'd pick a city and i'd crowdfund it i'd be like hey edmonton i want to come i want to perform uh, so, you know, it's February. I want to come in May and perform, but we have to pre-sell 50 tickets. Is this all Indiegogo? All Indiegogo. Because Kickstarter was all or nothing. Indiegogo mm. gave you like the freedom. If you right. didn't hit your goals, you could, they'd take a bigger percentage, but we could still make it happen. And so you're covering the cost of the venue, you're, the venue and the travel? Like I was trying to cover the venue and the travel, um, and then slowly. So um, I found more creative ways to kind of earn a little bit more. So one thing I did was I'd say, first, we need to send, yeah, so I figure out the bare basic cost. Mm. The venue, most of the venues, I kind of made a deal with them. I said, you keep the alcohol money, um, um, I'll just take the ticket money. And, you know, and they were pretty much happy with that, uh, putting bodies in the door. Right. I would do shows on, you know, non-busy nights. So it was, just, it was a bonus for them. 
Um, and I'll be like, hey, you know, if this is going to cost me 1500 bucks to get out to Edmonton and have a place to stay and, and throw the show, hey, I need, and, and I'm selling the tickets for 15 bucks each, then I need to pre-sell 100 tickets. Mm. I need to pre-sell them, and I tell them, Edmonton, if we don't sell the 100 tickets, I'm not coming. Right. Don't, don't leave comments in there. <laughs> um, and, I, and, I was, and at that point, it wasn't about 100 tickets. I had to sell about 40 tickets, 50 tickets. And I did this in New York, sold 250 tickets. Wow. I did this in like Sacramento, sold like 80 tickets. I did this in London, sold about 300 tickets. Are there a lot of artists doing this? I've literally never heard of this. No, a lot of artists are waiting to get discovered. Hmm. And somebody else to do it. That's and, so fucking interesting. I love that. It's a dig. I like it. I, I like the style. On, on top of all of this, I said, hey. I'm going to make a poster and I'm going to sign the poster and everybody gets a poster. But what I'll also do is if you want to sponsor my event, then it's $500. So now it'll be like quest bars present humble, the right. poet live in London. And then you guys give me $500. So then it got to the point where I was making the money before. And then I'd be like, Hey, so it's $15 for a ticket, $40 for a ticket and a signed book. Mm. And then very slowly my audience changed from young guys who love hip hop to girls bringing the book waiting for me to read from it interesting not knowing that i made music the book impacted way quicker way harder than than the music did really i yeah. had no idea that's really interesting and, and yeah and, I, and it was in vancouver for the first time because literally the only guys at the show were my friends who were doing security or just wow. at the door and they appreciated it did it you still do the hip-hop shows 100 percent, i just rap because for me rap is like a big chip on my shoulders just mm. this is i'm really good at it i need the world to know even now all the money i've made from you know it's the same way with you in the comics it's the money you've made in the business world you're investing it into this thing that, that you're going to do no matter what mm. and so for me that's what music is and uh, i had figured this out and then as as lily grew she um in 2015 she went on a world tour and she took me on her world tour and then i got i got paid well to be on the world tour with her and perform. we had done some music together mm. and um they were also doing a documentary and then the film the the, the film team and the producers of the documentary hired me because I was the only guy who could get away with like putting a camera on Lily's face <laughs> and not being told to like leave the room. Right. So, so for some of her more intimate, stressed out moments that they wanted to capture, mm. I had kind of that, that carte blanche to like be in the room and just press record. Right. And everybody was okay with that. So I got some money off of that. So 20, by the end of 2015, I'd made a promise to myself that you will no longer do anything for money. So then 2016, I was saying no or tripling what I would normally quote people for an appearance for a performance and I ended up earning more from this this abundance mindset of I'm already taken care of because mm. at this point I had like $45,000 in the bank I had accumulated from the previous year because I said I live simple right when I when I was at zero when I had my negative 80 I was saving every penny so now I'm still able to save money and at 45 like that's enough for me to live for a year because I'm still living with my parents at the time right. and uh at that point I was all in for music and then other really good opportunities came and then um, end of 2016 was a, was a very good year for me. 2017, um, I got an uh, Apple reach though, uh, an ad agency saying, hey, you know, we, we're, we're doing our first uh, Apple commercial in Canada for the iPhone and we want you to, to be our, our poet. Were you in an Apple ad? Yeah, I'm in an iPhone ad. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, That's awesome, man. Yeah. Did, did you feel that? Did that pop off your business? Um, and is it your song? You're doing a song? I did a spoken word. So that's the thing. So I hadn't, I hadn't done spoken word in years, mm. but and it was just serendipitous. Somebody in L.A. said, oh, you need to meet this guy named Saul Guy in Toronto. And he's doing he, he runs an artist house and he's supporting artists and all of this stuff. And I, and I met with him. He gave me a tour of his place. The next day, the guy from the ad agency went to go see him. And he's like, I'm looking for a poet. And this guy's like, a guy named Humble the Poet was here yesterday. 
And I had been on um, a, a, some um, some radio shows and some TV shows uh, in Canada uh, related to books. We have a we have a, a a show called Canada Reads, which is the greatest show ever. <laughs> Imagine Survivor, but for books. What? So they get five public figures. So I'm I'm a, I'm a solid C list celebrity in Canada at this point. So they call me and they're like, Hey, we'll pay you ten grand to read five books and, and debate them with four other people. Debate and the merits of the book. Yeah. So everybody, okay. so every everyone picks a book. So uh, you know, my book was called Fifteen Dogs. They, they they sent me a bunch of books and I picked the book I liked. Mm. And I had to de- de- defend this book. And there's four other contestants. One was like an opera singer. One was an actor. One was an army sniper who lost both of his legs. Oh. So these are just public figures in the country of Canada. Mm. And I didn't realize how popular this show was. This the show is super popular on the radio and on television. So I go on to this show. And um, we're just debating books. And even if your book is voted out, you're still on the show. So it's very Canadian and friendly and it's fun. <laughs> and so for me, it was like, hey, this is awesome. I'm meeting new people. And I ended up, my book wins the show. Um, your argument for the book, I'm assuming. My argument for the book wins the show. And I, and, and I, and I, picked, and I had picked a, a book that I just thought was cool. It's called 15 Dogs. I think you guys should check it out. Andre Alexis. It's about 15 dogs who are given human intelligence. Hmm. And you watch their journeys to see if any of them can die happy. That's the question. Does intelligence make us happy? And it's following 15 dogs to see if any of them can die happy with their newfound intelligence. Um, I ended up winning the debate between uh, not being the last person on the show and I win. That caught the attention of um, the publishing community in Canada. And then they found out that, hey, he had self-published a book. Mm-hmm. I had also self-published a second book at that point. And they were offering me book deals and not very lucrative deals out in Canada. Right. You know, they don't have the biggest market. And... At that point, while that happened, the Apple commercial happened, and then that gave me a very big paycheck, and I was like, "Wow, like this is like surreal for me, you know." Mm. And this this is a, a high five figure paycheck, not even six figures, but wow. for me, it was. You give me forty grand, hey, I can live for a year. Say that's yeah. that's a lot of dosh. Going back to fifteen dogs, have you um, either? I don't know if they turn it into a movie. I could be making that up, but Flowers for Algernon. I have not. Oh, uh, so fucking interesting. So it's the story about this guy, and he is um, ultra low IQ. Yeah. And this woman is doing um, an experiment, and she basically ends up giving him intelligence. And I actually, I can't remember if I'm totally misremembering this. And yeah. she gives. Oh God! There's a rat figures into all this. Anyway, this person with this really low IQ. Are you IQ, talking about the Ninja Turtles? No, no. <laughs> this person with a super low IQ gets this drug, and they end up becoming really smart. But it ultimately ends up wearing off, and it's about like the fucking heartbreak of knowing oh. that you were smart and now being able to be aware that you used to be really dumb, and now you're sliding back towards that, and like the loss of humanity as you lose your intelligence. So fucking interesting. I remember I read that as a kid. That really stuck with oh, me. There's a Simpsons episode about that. Oh, dude, it's such a famous story. Yeah, Homer Simpson, they found out he had a crayon in his nose. A what in his nose? A crayon. A crayon. So when Homer okay. was a child, he put a crayon up his nose, and then the doctor pulls it out, and then he has super high intelligence. But now he's no longer able to connect with his family, right. including Lisa. He's just his his empathy and his warmth has, has disappeared. Mm. So at the end, he puts the he puts the crayon back up his nose. That's so fucking. So be the it's so of. interesting to me that The Simpsons is able to touch on something so interesting. Yeah. Like forever, my you know uh, magic genie shows up, and what do you wish for? I always wished for super intelligence, 
And my wife was always horrified because she's like, but then we would lose connection. And it was interesting because as soon as she said it, I was like, yeah, fuck, you're right. Like if, if you were really processing like at that level where yeah. you just could not relate to other people, that's really interesting to me. But here's the question. Would you do it? No, not I anymore. would. I would. And that always makes my wife very traumatized. But the reality is, man, I would like that is so fucking interesting to me. Another one. Would you live forever if you could? Yes. See me too. But what about all the people you're going to lose? I'm okay with that. I am too. This is so weird. So I'm, I was on Joe Rogan and he was talking about, oh God, an apocalypse or something. And I was saying like, oh yeah, like it would be so fascinating to survive an apocalypse and what that would look like. And he was like, wait, you want to live? And I was like, you don't? Like that was so weird. It was really eye-opening to me. I yeah, never I realized. He's the guy that could probably have the practical skills to do yeah, it. Very true. Yeah. But it never dawned on me that somebody would want to be in the part of humanity that dies in the apocalypse. Like as hard as it would be, as difficult as trying, like it would be so fucking interesting to me. Yeah. So it's like yeah, the first no few way. seasons of The Walking Dead when it was good. Yes. That's what you had a lot of people that just they hung themselves saying, I'm sorry, I give up. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And yeah, that's that that's one. I think the intelligence one for me is I think even the gap between having a three digit IQ and, and seeing what like mass population and, and the collective IQ is and seeing the disconnect from there sometimes makes it, you know, sometimes I envy people who don't overthink and envy people who just act more than they think. I, I will give you, look, I don't think intelligence is a one-way ticket to happiness. That is for sure. But I don't think that intelligence necessarily precludes happiness. So there was a really interesting um, expose that in full disclosure, I've only ever heard about, I've not seen. So if I get some of the details wrong, forgive me, but directionally, this will be correct. The smartest guy in the US or alive today, I don't remember which of the two, um, has I think a, like a 200 or 225 IQ. Wow. Einstein, if I'm not mistaken, was either 160 or 180. So it gives you an idea. It was way smarter than Einstein. Yeah. The guy was a fucking bouncer in a bar and he could not get his life together. Like he just didn't have the drive. He didn't have yeah. the interpersonal skills. He wasn't able to like go and manifest the things in his life that he wanted. And yeah. from the retelling anyway, this guy, like there was just a sadness about yeah. him. And I thought that's really, really interesting and when i think about the things that have worked out in my life it is certainly not because i've been smart if anything that's always been my struggle as i always yeah. feel like i've been around people who've been a lot smarter than me um but being able to relate to people having drive like that if you were going to yeah. say tom what's the thing it's it is grit, grit. determination I was, gonna, I was about to say that thousand yeah, percent like to angela duckworth right yeah. just being able to persevere to push through to not give up to, you were saying something earlier and it made me think of this really awesome quote from um, Walt Disney. He said, it won't feel like it at, at the time, but sometimes a kick in the teeth is exactly what you need. Oh, yeah. And I thought, fuck, that is so true. Like yeah. in the moment, it never feels right. In the moment, it is definitely not the thing that you want. You would wish it away if you could. Yeah. But the reality is having to face the betrayal, having to face having made an idiotic decision, having to face your inadequacies, all that stuff. One if you're willing to face it and you're willing to take that ownership, suddenly you yeah. can improve. And then also it gives you that chip on your shoulder, which is another thing I want to ask you about. So the chip on the shoulder to me, it's a dark energy, yeah. but it's fucking powerful. Very, very powerful. I, I overall, my, my overall, um, you know, environment and, and drive is still primarily based off of proving people right. There's, there's, there's guys around this country, around this planet who have given me couches to sleep on, put money in my hand, mm. put me in front of people. I mean, you know, 
even, even us connecting, you know, it was somebody being kind enough to say, hey, let me send an email, put, put myself on the line to connect Tom with you. And because if, if, if this was a bad experience for you, that, that would look <laughs> bad on them. Sure. You know, and that's been a st- my story forever. People going out of their way, literally creating an environment for me to be like, hey, don't worry about earning. Worry about figuring out yourself out. Mm. You got a place to stay here. And you also have the fact that people know that you're my friend. So not too many people are going to mess with you. I've had a lot of people do that. And these are people that don't generally need me to pay them back. So I try to pay it forward. And proving right is, is I want that to be my main energy. But there is a chip on my shoulder in many ways. You know, my father, when he was a cab driver, I was four years old. My earliest memory was him getting, he got beat up. Oh. And, and seeing his face all mangled and never, A, you don't think, you don't, think that concept of dad getting beat up B, mm-hmm. you've never seen what somebody looks like getting beat up and you know after that him having a big thick shield in his cab right. in between the drivers and, and again us kids we thought it was the funnest thing ever you slide the window open you can put the money yeah. through we're just pretending not really how realizing how serious of a thing it was and then getting a little bit older and feeling that anxiety like hey he he drives 12 hour shifts and sometimes it's 3 p.m to 3 a.m sometimes it's 6 p.m to 6 a.m and you don't know what's going to happen and what he's going to see. And then, you know, that that chip on my shoulder being like, I wish I could make a lot of money and I can smash that cab. I don't want him to work in that cab ever again. And, you know, I never got to hit that. He's retired before I got to, to, to my financial independence. But, you know, then also realizing that you have to update the voices in your head and be like, hey, he, he his story was his story. He had to do what he had to do. And even if I was able to, to make a boatload of money and, and retire him, what would you know? I still would have had something else to prove. Someone else. There's these inner, it's these inner voices in our head, and sometimes we just have to confront them or even have conversations with the people that originally planted them because they're they're flawed human beings. Nobody, even the guy who gave me the the the, the bad record deal. Like at the end of the day, now looking back at it, I'm grateful it happened. I also see fear. I don't see conniving. I don't see evil mm. in him. I see a person that got himself in a bad situation, didn't have the tools to be like, yo, I messed up. Let's let's sit down and talk about this and figure it out. That's exactly what I thought when you were telling that story. I thought, fuck, actually, my heart breaks a little bit for him. The yeah. fact that he had to flee yeah. because he wasn't willing to tell you that, oh, shit, either I lied or stretched the truth or it fell through or I'm embarrassed or whatever. But that absconding in the middle of the night with the clothes on his back yeah. was the solution like that's. That's not a good place. And to he be lost, I mean, and he lost his friends too. Like every friend that, that like when we connected and he had a circle, they're all my friends mm. now. Like as adults, I met with these guys and they all saw that, that this wasn't cool. Yeah. And I'm sure if I went deeper into his situation, he probably grew up in an environment where this stuff might've been normal or what have you. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, this concept of having a chip, it's, it, it's not sustainable to prove people wrong, but I see, I see, I see it here too. Mm. A lot of people are, you know, it's, it's here it, being America here in LA. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, most people that are here are not from here. They came from other places. And, um, sometimes there's a lot of friction that happened at home and now they're here like, Hey, if I become successful, it'll make it all worth it. Right. A lot of us have the power to accurately visualize what we want and we can even manifest it. And I think especially in LA, you know, not everybody, you don't have to be smart to be successful. You just have to have that grit and you can, if you put your mind to anything, you can make it happen. That doesn't mean people are putting their mind to the right things. And we're visualizing and manifesting, but we're not accurately. uh, I don't know if this is a word, but emotionalizing what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So we're like, Oh, all I need to do is 
create a company and have a successful exit and then all will be there. Right. If you've never done it, how do you know what it's going to feel like? And then you do it and it doesn't, it becomes, it almost feels like an empty promise. And then some people have the self-awareness to be like, okay, I need to stop, break this cycle of trying to prove something to everybody else. Mm. Um, or I'm going to get trapped in the cycle forever. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Yeah, my thing is like, look, it's super powerful. Yeah. It's the 80-20 principle. So 80% of your time should be spent on the beautiful things you want to do in life. It should be spent on the things you're grateful for. Um, but 20% of the time, that's not going to get you through. You're going to be bone tired. You're going to be weary in a way that like only happens, you know, hopefully a few times a year where you're just fucking at your wits end. You couldn't possibly go another moment. Yeah. 
except for that chip on your shoulder. And they did a really fascinating study where they had people submerge their arm in a bucket of ice. And they said, leave it in as long as you can. And so they leave their arm in the bucket of ice and then, ah, fuck, it's so painful and they have to take it out. They came up with a baseline. And then they had another group come in and they said, put your arm in the bucket of ice. Now, when you get to the point where you wanna take it out, instead of taking it out, I want you to get angry and I want you to swear and then leave it in as long as you can. And so, oh man, fuck, I wanna take it out, Ah!" and they go into like total Hulk mode, and they beast out, and they swear and get angry. They can leave it in 30% longer. It's fucking crazy, man. But it's like, when you think about the emotions that we have, to your point about emotionalizing, which I don't think is a word, but I like it. um, When you are leveraging the power of your emotions, which they all have a purpose, even shame can be incredibly motivating. I know that that, one of the most powerful motivators at the beginning of my journey was shame, anger, frustration, the chip on your shoulder, the I'm never going to let that fucking person be right. The person who doubts you. And it's like, man, that, that has gotten me through the really ugly moments, the moments where it just wasn't enough that I wanted to help other people. It just wasn't enough that I wanted to win. It just wasn't enough that I wanted to build something beautiful. It was like, fuck this guy, like fuck this guy. And like, I really want people to understand that because one thing that that is so fucking dangerous about the the sort of space that you and I occupy, I read your book, it is very uplifting, it's very empowering. There's a nuance to life that is hard to fucking write down. There is a nuance to like all this shit where it's like sometimes it's fuck you. Like sometimes it's I love you, a thousand percent. And you should be there so much more yeah. than you're anywhere else. But sometimes it's fuck you. Sometimes it's like I'm I'm just not going to give up and you have to like push and hulk out and get angry and be willing to like grit your teeth and keep pushing forward. But people want to only say love yourself. In fact, that's probably the easiest place to talk about it. They want to just say love yourself. You're good enough. Everything's okay. But your journey began with my journey began with that moment where I was hard on myself. Yeah. And when you started this in the beginning, in fact, I didn't want to interrupt because what you're saying was really powerful. But the fact that you were like, I had to be hard on myself. Yes. I'm like, that's where people fall down. Yeah. It's like, fuck, you've got to hold yourself to a standard, man. Yeah. And like people that, that really love this show, Impact Theory, and they come and they want to work here, right? The first thing I tell them is, what you see on screen is me trying to uplift and empower people. You have to understand, I hold motherfuckers to a standard. So if you think all I'm gonna do is cuddle you, like that is not real, like that won't work, it won't win. And I'm always worried that people sort of selectively listen to what I say and they don't take the whole message. And sometimes, man, as much as yes, you need to love yourself. Yes, you need to be kind to yourself. Yes, you have to have grace and understanding for yourself and for other people. At the same fucking time, Like if you really want to achieve greatness, which you have no moral obligation to do, but if you want to achieve greatness, if that's really your shtick, let me tell you right now, you're going to have to hold yourself to a crazy fucking high standard. A crazy high standard. And I think even going back to what you said, you know, love is love. You know, it can be a kiss in the cheek, but it's also a kick in the teeth. Yeah. You know, and it's and from that perspective, and you're right for me and probably having the challenges of, you know, after interacting with other people and being like, you know, for me, it was suck it up for me. It was. You know, what's the use of complaining? So for me, hearing people complain now is, is, is kind of like nails on the chalkboard. Dude, nails on a fucking chalkboard. Yes. And here's the thing. The reason it's nails on a chalkboard for me is I actually want them to win. So for whatever reason, I'm wired. I love seeing other people win. It actually makes me happy. When I was five or six, one of my earliest memories is throwing an Easter egg hunt 
because I didn't care as much about winning as my sister did. So I saw an egg and I didn't pick it up because I knew that she would find it. So like that shit, seeing other people who really are invested in that, like I love it. I love seeing people win. But man, like at the end of the day, sometimes you just have to toughen the fuck up. You've got to stop complaining. You've got to get shit done. So when I see people who I want to win complaining, not taking responsibility, it's like, I get it, man. I get it. I really do have empathy for it. But at the end of the day, like if you want to achieve, you've got to take total ownership. I wrote an article. I thought this would be like my, one of my very first blog articles ever. I thought this would be like the greatest gift in the world. I wrote this thing (laughs) with so much fucking excitement. You can't imagine. I was like, Oh my God, people are going to read this. They're going to love it the most. (laughs) And it was, um, all right. Imagine you go for a drive one day and you're in your car and you pull up between these two cars and then behind another car. So you're Mm -hmm. basically trapped there in all sides. And you look in your rear view mirror and you see a car barreling on you from behind the lights red. So there's nowhere for you to go. You're totally boxed in. And the guy driving is drunk. You go to honk your horn. You realize your car's fucking dead. The horn doesn't work. You can't even make noise. There's no time to get out of your car. Bam, he smashes into you. Whose fault is that? Now, if you don't know me, everybody says, obviously, it's the drunk driver's fault. Insurance company is even going to agree with you. It's the drunk driver's fault. And I said, no, here's the great news. I was so excited. It's your fault. And people went fucking crazy. They were like, you're victim shaming. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is so crazy, you asshole. Like, what the fuck? This is irresponsible, Tom. I, I was so into you. And then you say this and fuck you. And I was like, what? Like, I I was so caught off guard by that reaction because I thought everybody was going to be like, oh, my God, you're right. I retain the power, which is what you were saying earlier. And if I give, if I say that it's his fault, then he takes all the power and there's nothing I could do. And my whole thing was, I'm not saying feel badly about yourself. Like, don't waste time beating yourself up over the fact that you ended there and your car wouldn't work and you pulled into the kill box and you got in your car in the first place. All I'm saying is always remember, if you make a different choice, you could get a different result. That's it. Yeah. Exactly, and I, th- <laughs> I and I think that's what it is. You, you, but you're trying to take people to where they need to be, mm. and 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 there's going to be no shortage of people because no one's going to come out of the box with that idea of taking personal responsibility. And you're absolutely right. I recently, um, you know, celebrating um, a friend's accomplishment, said something along the lines of, you know, I work as I work I work half as hard as you, but that still makes me work twice as hard as everybody else, and the blowback. Well, you know, you don't know other people's stories. You don't know why they're not able to work hard. And I'm not, I didn't, I didn't talk about a specific topic. And, right. and you get the blowback because people really take it as an attack on their identity. And they, they look at it as specifically just for them as if we're talking about that. And projecting these insecurities, I think it's super interesting because it holds us back. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice even as a society where we're, it's, and, and I'm Canadian, so we have so many not to get too political, but we have so many entitlements kind of embedded into our mm. culture. And years ago, I got to perform at Lollapalooza and I met Childish Gambino. And this is back before Toronto had its musical wave. And I said, we have so many talented people, um, but we're not seeing any traction. And he goes, it's because you have free healthcare. And I was like, what does it have to do with free healthcare? He goes, in, in this country, when you hit 18, you're on your own and you got to figure it out. He goes, you guys probably have a government-funded record label too, don't you? We do. And I mean, <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, we have we have uh, we have uh, a lot of grants and funds, and some of that got me out of my hole. So I'm, I'm gonna, you know, a lot of shout-outs to them. But we do have government-funded things, and mm. you know, they kind of look at it like, well, a Canadian artist can't compete with an American artist because our our market's smaller. So we're gonna invest in them, and you know, here's 
you know, and if you're a big enough artist, here's a $75,000 tour budget and that you don't have to pay back because a lot oh. of people go on the red going on tour. And so there's these things and it does build a level of entitlement because all of a sudden if the grant goes away, people are like, oh, what am I going to do with my life? That mm. was my thing. And I even noticed that with those England artists who told me about the radio spins for them to get those radio spins. They had to know the DJ. Right. Once the DJ left the station, now all of a sudden it was a human rights issue for them. And I think that's the big thing. It goes back wow. to that book. Um, I don't know. I remember the author who moved my cheese. Never heard of it. Oh, it's, it's, it'll take you 20 minutes to read the whole book. The book is about four mice running in a maze. And one day they go to where the cheese is at and it's not there. And each mouse represents an emotion. Uh, ham, ha, scurry. And I forgot what the last one is. Um, as to how they react to the cheese not being there. So one mouse is pretty much like, it's the end of the world. How dare the cheese not be there? To the, to, to the other side of the spectrum where the mouse is like, I was noticing that the cheese was slowly going away and I made preparations. Because none of this stuff happens overnight. Mm. None of these, you know, none of these, uh, uh, these entitlements that we have. And I'm a big fan of George Carlin. And George Carlin always says, stop mixing up your rights for your privileges. Most of the things you consider a right are a privilege. And as a privilege, they will slowly go away. Mm. And I was being told this even as a teacher. They're like, hey, you know, all these things that we have at retirement that we're getting right now in 2008, you're not going to get that. That will not be there when you're 50. Be mindful of that now. You know, telling my father, hey, Uber's coming in. Whether you think it's legal, moral, or right, right, it's here, and it's killing your taxi industry, you need to retire. Dude, I don't get people that fight back against change like that. Like, at the end of the day, the consumer is always going to win. Like, what they want is going to win. You can try to legislate it. Like, you will slow it down for sure, yeah. but you're never going to be able to stop it. It is like this one-way street. Entitlement is another thing where it's like, it really winds me up, yeah. but it winds me up for people. Because here's the, the reality about entitlement. As a human being, the only way to win, the only way to achieve greatness, which is my bias, I always come at things from like, human thriving to me is about actuating your potential. Yeah. I think that is innate. I don't think that, oh, some people just happen to like that. Not everybody wants to play at a global scale. I get that. But I think that humans thrive when they're improving. I think that that is one of the absolute foundational pillars yes. of happiness that you will never have true and lasting fulfillment unless you're improving. So that to me is like an innate thing. So, okay. So if we know that human thriving requires you to be pushing yourself and getting better to actuate your potential, the problem with failing to realize that and to feeling like people owe you something is one, even if things are given to you, that's never going to give you the fulfillment. So take money. Money is so fucking easy to like think your way through. When you give people money in a lottery, they are emotional messes yes. because they did nothing to earn that money. And when I tell people like when I got the money, it was, it didn't impact how I felt about myself. Why? Because the person I had to become in order to be capable of earning that money, that transformed me. It's like when people ask me about like, who is my favorite interview? I always say David Goggins, why? The funny thing is, it wasn't the interview. David Goggins changed me in the preparation, in building up for that, in researching him, and learning about him, and trying to get my mind around him so that I could do the interview. That was what changed me. It's the going through that journey yourself yeah. of becoming capable of something. That's the thing that transforms you. Yeah. And so when people are like, what the fuck, I'm owed this, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That will never serve you in the world at large. One, because of fulfillment, you have to be pushing yourself in order to develop skills. And then two, if you wanna get ahead in the world, the only way to do that is to leave people in awe. 
That's it. Like, if you want to move up in the world, like, you've got to dazzle people. You've got to make them go, whoa, what the fuck? You get your commercial, not because somebody knew somebody. That's how they became aware of you. You get the commercial because then they see you and they go, what the fuck? And the number of hours that you have to put into becoming that, that's the juice, right? And then the end is like, it's a cherry on top, but it was the struggle. It was being betrayed and fighting your way back and being $80,000 in debt and working your way up and having the money and being able to turn down jobs that weren't right because you never had to do anything for the money again. Like that was the thing that gives you that emotional stability. And it's never ending. There isn't, and this is the thing we, out here, everyone thinks in terms of a straight line, a beginning, middle and end that, you know, we watch TV, everything wraps up in 30, in in 30, 22 minutes, Mm. you know, everything wraps up in a nice tidy bow and it resets after. And that has such an impact on our psyche. We're like, I am working, I, I'm, I am working towards that pot of gold, not realizing that there is no pot of gold. You need to find the pot of gold on your rainbow. You need to have fun on this. And, and, and even for me, it's, you know, getting that commercial took me to one place. But now, um, you know, the book becoming a bestseller in Canada and then doing super well in India and, and, and hitting all these different markets independently and then through bookstores. And now here, realizing that, hey, I have a lot of bestselling author friends warn me, hey, you're working with publishers, manage your expectations. This is going to be on you. Mm. Up until my only promise to myself, you know, for the April 9th release was you have to be able to go to sleep on April 9th, knowing that you squeezed out everything you could to make sure that this would be a successful campaign. Mm. That meant, you know, for me, challenging my Canadian sensibility. <laughs> my Canadian sensibilities are you send a text once and if they reply, they reply. Mm. If they don't, you leave them alone. You know, and, 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 I, and I appreciate how assertive, you know, you American cowboys are. You guys are a lot more assertive and you guys welcome the assertiveness as well. Mm. So, you know, you got to poke and prod at people. And, I, and that's what had to happen this time. This, I almost kind of felt like this was my baby and I'm trying to steal a loaf of bread for it. And I was poking people, everybody and anybody seeing from different angles. Like, hey, I need you to contact so-and-so. Hey, I need you to hold. I need you to reach out to so-and-so. Hey, I need you to open the book. If you, you need to open this book because the moment you open it, you're going to connect with something that you read. I, I, and for me, that was the victory. Mm. Now knowing that, hey, I was always afraid of, quote unquote, burning bridges. Or I was always afraid of offending people. Or I was always afraid of coming across as too crass or too, or too uh, uh, pokey at them. But then the other part of my, me was like, listen, this is it. You signed with a major publisher. This is it. There's not a level above this now. Right. This is the final release for this book. It had its independent release. It had its Canadian release. It did very well when you sold it independently. But now this is it. You're in the big leagues. You're at the championship game. You're not going to hold anything back. And for me to realize how much was inside of me that I was holding back. Because right. there's levels to this fear. And first, you know, yeah, fear to pull the trigger and leave your day job to do this. But then there's fear of asking for help. Then there's fear of... Um, putting yourself out there and being vulnerable and being and being completely naked and authentic with the people around you and being like, this is what it is. And this has really shown me that I, I have probably a solid, and I don't want to be absolute, probably a 95% success rate of facing a fear and the worst case scenario not happening. Mm. And, you know, and, and that's everything. That's asking that girl for her phone number. That is telling your parents and, and, and coming out of the closet. That is... Uh, telling somebody you're in a relationship with that this, it, this isn't doing it for you. All of these things that, you know, fear manifests itself in so many ways and, and, it, and it creates so much resistance and mm. we start to justify it on so many levels. All of this is just 
going to hold you back. And now all of a sudden you're going to need fixes. My, my friend in Berlin, he wakes up at five in the morning, works out at a jungle gym in cold Berlin. Berlin, I think Berlin did three hours of sunlight last winter. Oh. It's, it's just a cold, cloudy place. And he, and he just wears winter gloves and he just pull ups on this jungle gym. And there's nobody watching. He's not, mm. He doesn't have a blog. He doesn't have social media. Dude. He has none of this. And he doesn't read books. And this is why he fascinates me. And I'm like, why are you doing this? He goes, I just, I just do what feels good. He's Jamaican. And he says to me, because I'm a young black man who doesn't need a fix anymore. Because this was his journey to get out of mm. addiction. And, you know, I felt like a bad influence on him, too. And I was like, hey, let's not, <laughs> let's not ride bikes today in the cold winter to go downtown. I'll, you know, I'll cover an Uber or something. And I'm like, I don't want to make it almost as if I was about to give him sugar for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting perspective. And it's it goes back to that. Like, why would somebody with your success take cold showers? I think of Kevin Rose. Every time I look at his Instagram, this guy's attaching himself to like a stretch machine, doing something to be uncomfortable or intermittent fasting. And it's mm -hmm. just and it is that Bruce Wayne idea of sleeping on the floor. And and, and and one of my favorite yet most inconvenient quotes that I always have to remind myself is true freedom only exists in discipline. And to understand that it's not once I get that big check and I can write out the rest of my day. Right. This is forever. I overcame a lot of personal challenges and, and faced a lot of fears releasing this book. I, now what's next? And, and fear ends up being that compass. Fear is telling you which way we have to go. And so often, especially as resources come into our lives, we have the luxury to avoid facing these things and looking them in the eyes. Because we can be like, oh, uh, let me just, you know, let me go to this show or let me let me buy this toy. Now I can afford that or I can afford to be around people who will never say no to me. Or I can afford to be around people who will never tell me how it is. Right. And that's in itself a danger. For sure. In fact, when you were talking about your friend um, who struggled with addiction and then he goes and works on a farm or yeah. whatever it was, I thought, yes, like that's I'd never put it together in my head until you said it. And then I thought that's actually really perfect. Like the putting the body to work, not giving the mind time to be idle, forcing yourself to be disciplined, forcing yourself to do hard things. Like all of the sudden, it's the things that would create the space for the addiction to pour in and, and everybody bear with me because I'm sort of thinking through this in real time. But like all the things that would create that space, that, that sort of void and that openness and the sort of internal chatter would go away when you have those physical demands. Like when you get in a cold shower, you're not thinking about anything other than get the fuck out. Like your mind is screaming it so hard, like every muscle in you tenses and you have to, and this is why it's so powerful, you have to learn to relax. Even when like part of your mind is screaming for something else yeah. that you know, nope, I'm in control. I don't have to get out. I'm not going to die. And you can relax it. And it's like, once you're able to take control of your emotions like that, or once you're able to, like in his case, put your body to work, like there's just something that happens when either you have control of your mind. I mean, it's really both. You have control of your mind, which allows you to go do things that are hard to work on the farm, to exhaust yourself. And that's something that in, I think modern society, people don't know what it means to be fucking exhausted. Like a lot of oh, people yeah. don't, they don't work out. They're not pushing themselves. They're not taxing the body. And there's like a restlessness. I mean, people talk a lot about anxiety and depression. One of the first things you should do is start working out. Like if somebody tells me that they have depression, almost guaranteed, not always, everybody out there freaking out, I get it. Not always, but almost always, they're not working out. Self-diagnosed depression. Yeah. yeah. They're not working out. Their diet is fucked. Like there's just a certain level of go 
push your body. Go get control of your mind. Do really hard shit, especially when you don't want to do it. Yeah, and it's not as convenient as pulling out your phone and scrolling and getting getting these little dopamine shots. Mm. It's not as convenient as masturbating. It's not as convenient as a whole bunch of other things that might give you some a quick uh, piece of gratification, but it is more sustainable. Yeah, it's and, fulfillment. And it's, it's fulfillment. It's fulfillment, yeah. like happiness versus fulfillment. Like yeah. happiness is super transient. Yeah. A bowl of ice cream gives me fucking happiness. Yeah. Let me tell you right now, you could put me in an fMRI machine. That shit is tasty as fuck. And eating it brings me a lot of happiness, yeah. but it doesn't bring me fulfillment, right? Yeah. So, Nor is it sustainable. Right. If you ate it every day, it, it, it's, it's ability to keep you happy. Yeah, fucking hedonic set points. Like yeah. that is surreal. That like you want to talk about the human condition is just weird. Yeah. Hedonic set points is one of them. So for anybody that's never heard of a hedonic set point, it's like at first, like you're saying, the bowl of ice cream is so rad that it's all over my radar. And then the next time it's like a little less rad and then a little less. And then all of a sudden it's like not at all. And I'm just doing it now out of, out of compulsion. And like just to hit sort of okay or you know the baseline like an alcoholic like at first you drink because it's fun and like in my case you feel like you're suppressing the urge to dance on the table and then all of a sudden you're just fucking drinking to to not shake and vomit yeah and understanding that that's like just the sad sort of reality of the human condition is that shit will adjust so you have to give yourself those spaces like fasting i hate it but i do it and partly because Dude, that first meal when you break fast, oh my God. After five days of water only fasting, that meal is exquisite. No matter almost no matter what you eat, yeah. it's like, oh my God, this is the best Ritz cracker I've ever had in my life. You know, yeah. like whatever you're going to have is just gonna be beyond extraordinary. Yeah, and I mean I'm sure style. if you do if you had an ice cream, you know, ice cream once a month and you know, you made an event out of it, you mm. would enjoy it so much more. That's than another thing. Make a time. fucking event out of it. Yeah. Like when, when I see people eating ice cream that they clearly don't want to be eating it, yeah. like we're, we're now in a sad place that always bums me out. Cause it's either don't eat it or eat it and fucking love it. Yeah. Like make a thing out of it. Like really do it as a conscious celebration. Then, Hey, I'm all for it. I'm so lucky that my happy food right now is a specific salad. I don't know why. Wow. A sweet green, the Hollywood Bowl, or tofu. I don't know why. I, I love it so much. Even is when, part of it psychological because you know it's nourishing you, or is it purely just as a great fucking salad? I feel like I don't even like salad. I feel like just what, whatever they're putting into it, the, 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 the chemistry of it is, is just hitting everything. Well, part of it could be if you're drowning it in dressing, which is where a lot of people go Probably. wrong with salads. Probably. <laughs> it's like they put sugar in dressings. People drown shit in dressings. So I feel like it's still more sustainable than ice cream. Yeah, that is for sure. And and it makes me happy. And I mean, I mean, even now, like when when I was on on my way here and and I got the call saying, hey, things are moving a little bit late. I I literally just changed the address, went there and I ate the salad and it just made me super happy. And maybe there is an element of it where just like, hey, you don't feel as guilty eating this because Mm. you don't have it's not like eating, you know, eating a bunch of bread and feeling exhausted right after eating it. But I mean, I feel grateful for that because in terms of what I splurge on. And, and I think it was all those years of my minimalism just, you know, that has really embedded itself into me mm-hmm. where I don't have a lot of real interest that I want to, you know, spend my time and money on anymore that excite yeah. me. And, and I'm super grateful for that. So I'm just like, yeah, I love eating the salad and it's a treat and I could probably do it two times a day. That's funny. And it's, yeah, it doesn't bother me so much. Before I let you go, I need to ask, yeah. what's your most important tattoo? 
So for people just listening, the man has several tattoos. And I'm always curious when people have tats, like what what is the one that like this one is meaningful? This this one right here. Now? Yeah. Period. Why is that important? Understanding that that's all I have. You know, I I have nothing else. Like in an Eckhart Tolle kind of way? I think have you read it, The Power Now? Um, I haven't. So fucking interesting. It, it, with that tattoo, one, the book will be sort of self-evident to you because yeah. you're obviously already bought into the notion. I think that's what it is, too. I'm, I'm, I grew up, you know, I grew up in, in Sikh heritage. I grew up with Eastern philosophy. So I'm realizing mm. a lot of times when people come to me, they hit me with this, this, this stuff that my mom was teaching me when I was a kid. Right. Eastern philosophy, cyclical, being present, you know, understanding anxiety exists in the future mm. and regrets exist in the past, a lot of this. But I think it was when I, at one of my moments where uh, I was dealing with more superficial loss, nothing you know that was impacting my ability to survive. I was just like, look, at the end of the day, you literally only have now. Mm. The first quote in your book is from the Tao Te Ching, right? Yeah. Speaking of Eastern philosophy, just because we have it right here, read yeah. it. So there was um, a time in my life when I self-identified as a Taoist. I went hard on the Taoism. Yeah. So to attain knowledge, add things every day. To attain wisdom, remove things every day. I fucking love that quote. Yeah. And that pretty much sums up your book, which is called Unlearn, by the way. Yeah, and, and that's what it was in that journey. Like, pretty much I wrote, and when, when everyone said you should write the book, and I, and I put this book together based off the writings, um, it was me realizing, A, you know, the fluffy stuff is fluffy. Let's mm. get more pragmatic. But B, it wasn't about acquiring something new and it's a, a special skill or a special mindset to move forward. It was really letting go of stuff. And, like, you know, as you mentioned with shame, it was... I, there was a lot of shame and guilt and I'm finding the source of that. It's like, oh, that came from my upbringing because that's a common tool that's used in our culture is, is, is guilt and shame and having to be mindful of that. Like, all right, I need to let that go. Not only do I need to let it go in my internal dialogue, I need to let it go on my tool belt. Mm -hmm. I can't make anybody, I made a promise, don't ever make people feel guilty or ashamed. And if somebody is already manifesting that, for example, you know, let's say how this ran a little bit late. If you felt guilty for it, I'd, it would it'd be my responsibility to like, no, that's mm -hmm. not me. I'm not that guy. I'll find something to do with the extra 30 minutes. <laughs> Don't let that happen. We need to, we need to break that cycle. Cause I do kind of feel like th there is a level of unhealthiness that came to that. And, and this journey with this book is the reason I wanted to, to finish that story with, with the publishers and all reaching out to me is when they came to me with the deals, I said, Hey, I wrote a book and people really dig it and I feel it has legs and you guys would be a, a bigger trampoline to bounce it off of. What do you guys think? Mm. And they said, traditionally, we don't publish books that are already out. And then I'm like, all right, cool. I'm gonna go make music. And I just, I just said, no, I'm like, this is, I don't want to do it. And I think I figured out ways to make money. So I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And then uh, a bookstore by the name of Indigo, which is a, a big chain in Canada and they own all the bookstores. They're like, Hey, we're starting a publishing uh, wing. Uh, we love your first book. Can can we just change the cover and republish wow. it? So I was like, so what do I? What do you need from me? They're like, can you just email us the PDF? So they didn't even change the <laughs> formatting or anything. I just wow. And I, and I have spelling mis I had spelling mistakes in it. I had grammar mistakes. I had everything in, in my original copy. Um, and then they took it and they just put it on the shelves. And that's when it became a bestseller. And wow. then and and in complete honesty and authenticity. You know, the publishers are like, well, you sold well in Canada. We're going to call you an international bestseller. <laughs> hey, respect, man. However, since this drop has been doing very well here. And it's, uh, and again, but I think I'm not, I, I'm not finding that fulfillment from seeing myself, number one, uh, and, you know, in whatever niche category they have mm -hmm. me in on Amazon as, as a bestseller. I'm finding um, fulfillment knowing that, hey, 
you left it all in the ring. Right. You you reached out to people. You poked people. You did it by yourself. You you camped out of people's offices. You knocked on doors. You you had the uncomfortable conversations with your publishers. You you called people out. You asked for favors from people that you were afraid to ever ask anything mm. from, and that is where I got a lot of pride. And I think I also think it's important for the audience to know how even we met. We had a really great conversation and not knowing who each other were. Mm. And I think that's really important. At the important. birthday party. At the birthday party. Yeah. And to me, at that point, you, you were somebody who was, who was making comic books. And you, you, you gave me a really fascinating story about how comic books also work as proof of concept for films. Mm. And I was like, this is really interesting. And I'm just like, how'd you get into that? And then you started telling your story. And then realizing that, hey, because Lily would always tell me, she's like, yeah, I did this podcast uh, with a guy named Tom. And uh, he, he owns Quest Bars. And I was like, oh, like the, the, like the protein bars and stuff? He's like, yeah. He asked me questions that I've never heard before. <laughs> he does the best interviews ever. And I remember that was, that was all it was. And I'm just like, wow, he, it was, I really appreciated that we had that authentic moment. And it wasn't mm. somebody being like, hey, Tom, and humble, you have to connect. Right. It was yeah, something yeah. really cool like that. And I'm glad to be you know, the first guy to, to do this. I think you should definitely do a lot more of this. No, it's been a lot of fun, these man. conversations, a lot to learn. And meeting you, because I'm actually really bad at meeting people. Okay. And that that was like really some early attempts of mine to like get to know people and strike up conversations just like cold. So it was, yeah. it was a lot of fun to have something be so rewarding. Like your story is really, really interesting. And it Thank was you, as fun that night as it has been today. I do have another question that came up during our conversation and I tried to pin it and then I forgot what are your thoughts on ambition and contentment? Wow, that's an awesome question. So I think that they coexist beautifully. I think that you can be both wildly ambitious and at the same time be, when you're looking at your life, be like, I'm totally content. And if I never achieve another thing, like I'm totally happy. To me, it is about you can flip a switch in your mind and people have got to learn to control their minds. Like they, if you have one mission in this life, it is to learn to use your mind to your advantage and not to let it run away with you. So I know if I want to, like if you said, you, Tom, you can never do another thing. Like this is your life, what you have now. This is it. You'll never be able to strive. I'd be like, okay, well then I'm going to focus all of my attention on gratitude. I'm going to live a sort of emotional monk life. I'm going to flip a value in my mind. And this is where people fuck up. They don't understand the power of values. What do you value? I value ambition, I value pursuit, but I've chosen to value that. Now I could just as easily go, you know what, starting today, I believe the following. The Buddhists were right. And all of life is suffering born of desire. And once you let go of desire, you let go of suffering. And I would just decide, I'm gonna fucking value that. I already think there's wisdom in it. Now I choose to actually ignore it. Yeah. And my life is all about pursuit and ambition, but I'm very careful never to make it about success. So I'm not tied to the outcome, I'm tied entirely to did I sincerely pursue something that I believed in, mm. that I really cared about? And if you said you just can't do that anymore, for whatever reason, I would set that aside as a value and I would bring a new value into my life and that new value would be contentedness. So when I look at my life, I'm like, fuck, man, I love my life. I love my wife. I love what I'm doing. I believe in this. Like, I'm cool. I'm chill. I'm good like this. But at the same time, then other times I'm like, no, no, no. Like, let's see how far we can really push this fucking thing. So then I have to leverage the discontent. Then I have to leverage the chip on my shoulder. Then I have to decide to spend some amount of my energy focused on what's wrong. I have to spend some amount of energy in the hunger, feeding that, stoking those flames. But always, 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 I have in my mind what I call the overwatch mechanism. And the overwatch mechanism is watching for 
it's it's sort of the the always sober version of myself. So whether the sobriety is sobriety from ambition, whether the sobriety is sobriety from fear, whether it's sobriety from actual alcohol, like there's always a part of my mind that is watching what I do and is very careful to make sure that what I do is in alignment with my beliefs and values and all that. So like a checks and balances. Yeah. yeah. And I think that everybody has that, but you have to focus on it. You And that look, that doesn't mean that I don't misspeak or say stupid shit yeah, or, yeah. or get off track. So in no way, shape or form, am I saying that the fucking Overwatch mechanism is perfect? It's not. Yeah. But it keeps me from staying derailed for too long. It keeps me from not recognizing a mistake and then, you know, just making sure that I apologize and I move on. Um, so... Yeah, being able to go back and forth. Earlier, we were talking about that nuance. Like people, like achieving at the highest level requires this crazy amount of nuance that is so fucking hard to write. Which yeah. is why I've not written a book because it's fucking hard. Yeah. And every time I go to capture it, I'm like, I can speak about it, yeah. but like putting it into words, it, it gets very difficult. So it's when you have this grand ambition, which is simply a choice. I've chosen to value that. Then. If you let that be all-consuming and you forget the power of now or you forget the power of like, take a minute to enjoy what you have, like don't run so hard that you forget you actually have something pretty fucking extraordinary, even if all you have is your health, even if you don't have your health, but you have the ability to try to win it back, even if you don't have the ability to win it back, but you know like fucking Viktor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp, said at any time, if you know why you're struggling, if you know why you're going through this thing, no matter how horrific it is, you can get through it. And it's like the Nietzsche quote. Yeah. If you have the right why, you can survive almost yeah. anyhow. Even the Albert Camus, uh, with, with, you know, in the, in the coldest of winter within me, I found, you know, an eternal summer. And it's that, you know, and, 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 and he's saying it very silly, like, you know, the, the Sisyphus story, you know, mm. imagine Sisyphus pushing the rock and, and it rolling back down, but imagine him having fun doing it knowing what the outcome is going to be each time and still being okay with it. I always thought that was, that was, that was something I, I've always been kind of tackling with this idea that ambition means where, where I'm at isn't enough mm. and I have ambitions to go further. Contentment means all of this is fine. How do we make them hold hands? And I think you hit it on the nose right there where you're like, look, there are compartments or there are pieces of me and I am embracing them all, whether that's that, that dark side, that chip on my shoulder, those negative thoughts, the, you know, the voices that, that you know, the voices of that kid who, who beat me up when I was 10 years old and now I got to channel that inner Hulk to make this all happen. Cool. And then I need to take a break from that. And now all of a sudden I need to, to, to channel the love of my wife or the love of my family and, and, and think in terms of warmth. And I think so many of us are thinking in absolutes. It's either black or it's either white. Mm -hmm. We're either always positive or we're either always negative. And it's like, no, we, we exist. And I'm, and I'm so grateful that all the people that I'm meeting in this space, I feel like this generation of people who are trying to help people find their greatness, their wellness, and, and, and presenting the message are all saying, look, I'm flawed. You know, I'm, I'm messing up and I'm here to share my journey with you guys as I mess up. Mm. And please don't think you guys can hold me to some holier-than-thou standard because we're not there. And right. all of these, and, I, and I've had that too with, with the success of this book is, and obviously having a beard and, and, and looking, you know, get, have, looking like Osho, people start to think, <laughs> you know, this guy like has it all. And, you know, and, 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 and speaking slowly or just not having too much color in my voice when I speak, people think I'm calm and I meditate all the time. Mm. And, and I don't. I don't do any of this. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who makes mistakes like everybody else. I make irresponsible mistakes. Sometimes I say dumb shit on social media just like everybody else. Um, but I just take an extra five seconds 
to to think about what I did mm-hmm. and think a little bit deeper for it. And then like an excited excited nerd, I want to share that with people who care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and I really appreciate you sharing this platform and your community with me as well. Um, so we, you know we can expand that and just c- continue this movement. It's so exciting to to do this. And I'm excited to see who else you get on this couch and kind of geek out and just sit there as like a quiet third person drinking my tea watching you guys just riff it'll be fun man yeah. thank you for sharing today it's rad thank you for the book which yeah, is a beautiful so addition to the me. world i appreciate this i, I appreciate you uh, again sharing the platform and absolutely it's, man it's, things have been things have been going really well with this and and no matter what happens with this book i'm proud of what i've been able to channel inside to kind mm-hmm. of make to make this happen and i think for anybody out there writing again i, I self-published this book five years ago and I moved on and I focused on my music. Mm. This book didn't leave me alone. It, 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 it does what it does by itself. And it got me to this point. And again, I'm, I'm, everything I make off this book is going back into the music. And I'm, I want to, as I said, have fun, focus on those, some of those chips on my shoulders and, and, and create. And for my own specific community, the South Asian community, uh, you know, this is the first time we've had the we've had the space to be creators mm-hmm. and, and you're seeing that with Lily Singh, you're seeing that with Rupi Kaur, you're seeing that now we had to cross the pond and find mm-hmm. a safe place because back home there's a lot of conflict and, and, and that opportunity didn't arise and it's been such a journey and this book was birthed out of me being fed up with the fluffy stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all, it's, I'm focusing on pragmatism. Um, probably when the camera ends, I love some more, you know, constructive critique on the book and, and, and as I you know continue writing to 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 connect with, with more audiences and, and people who may have already heard these messages and need to move on to the next mm-hmm. one. Cool. I really man. appreciate that man. Awesome. Well brother, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you for having me.